From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Some families of those killed in the Aurora Theater shooting are concerned about the new movie, Joker. You think this is funny? <laughs> is this a joke to you? <laughs> what they're asking the studio and filmmakers to do as the movie hits theaters today. Then, for Denver and Colorado, it's all about location, location, location. If you're in a, a normal uh, city the size of Denver that is not an airline hub, you do not get to go so many places nonstop. But that doesn't necessarily mean cheaper airfare. Also, art through the eyes of inmates. Coming from a world where people make assumptions about who they are. And from teaching high school to composing classical music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Today, Warner Brothers' new film, Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix, hits theaters. Since its debut at Venice Film Festival, the film has been met with high praise and has stirred up controversy. This is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Some sound from the movie trailer there. The same trailer that deeply unsettled Sandy and Lonnie Phillips when they saw it. Their daughter, Jessica Gowie, was killed in the 2012 Aurora Theater shooting during a screening of The Dark Knight Rises. It prompted them and other friends and families of victims to write a letter to Warner Brothers asking the studio to stand against gun violence. Sandy and Lonnie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you. There have been other Batman-related films since 2012 and other depictions of the Joker character like 2016's Suicide Squad. Sandy, what about this film raises red flags for you? Well, they developed this character um, and it was so similar to our killer's character that that was disturbing for me. But it's really not about the movie. It's it's a form of art. People have the right to make a movie any way they want to. But I think there's a bigger problem here when it comes to corporate responsibility. And we, we're asking them to just quit donating to the people that are taking NRA money and vote against bills repeatedly that could save lives. And we should say that rumors that the Aurora shooter called himself the Joker were later found to be false. But your concerns about this film, like you said, they go beyond that parallel. And in that letter, you already mentioned at least one of the things you're asking Warner Brothers to commit to. Lonnie, can you run through what the other things you're asking Warner Brothers to commit to are? You know, when we, as Sandy said, when we first saw the movie, you know, we did, we did not boycott the movie. This is not what it's about. The things that we're asking them for, to the bottom line, what we're asking them for is to be a little bit more responsible uh, about the safety in our communities. So, you know, it's a he said, she said. Does it cause violence? Does it not? Does it really matter? They have a chance to offset violence. They show violence. Uh, violence makes money. That's fine. People go to the movies to sit and watch violence and eat expensive popcorn, that's fine. I have no problem with that. Uh, it's about making money. That's what it's really all about. So they have the money. 
why don't they give a portion of their profits and to good causes, to things that can help survivors? That's all we're asking. It was interesting to me that um, the character is a failed stand-up comic. And in the theater that night that our daughter was killed, <clears throat> there was a young man who was a stand-up comic. And he was shot in the head, lost sight in his right eye, um, went through several brain surgeries, still suffers from seizures, and is in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and can't speak. Um, his wife gave birth to their firstborn child three days later uh, while he was having brain surgery. So you make a movie that has all these coincidences in it. Um, we would like them to actually meet some of the survivors that suffer every day and um, realize that they have no support and no services. And that's a, a big cause for us. We want to be sure that survivors of gun violence have the resources that they need to recover. And when you said that this character in the film, Joker, is similar to your, the killer, what did you mean by that? Well, he's very dark. Um, he's m supposedly misunderstood. Um, it seems odd to me that they are trying to give sympathy of some sort towards a character who is so flawed and um, then takes the, the choice of being violent in our society. And that's exactly what happened in Aurora. I'm so sorry. The studio responded with a statement saying essentially they're fully committed to preventing gun violence and they have a long history of contributing <laughs> to victims' funds. <clears throat> Lonnie, what did you think of their response? I didn't think their response was adequate. Uh, yes, they did give money right after the Aurora shooting, and it was dispersed among the uh, victims uh, after great controversy. Uh, we had a hard time getting that money. It was donated to a local charity that only gives money to other local charities, and they were not going to give us any of that money. So we had that battle to fight, uh, and we've been fighting other battles uh, about the assault weapons. You know, when it we came out screaming against assault weapons because assault weapons do horrific damage. Uh, this movie does not, it shows violence, but if it showed someone getting hit in the head with a bullet from a 223 AR-15, it would blow half their head off. They can't show that reality in a movie. We want that acknowledged. They show violence, but they don't show real violence, the violence that victims feel, that, that when we see something like this, it triggers us. They don't take that into consideration, and I don't think they're, they're taking enough responsibility. Why won't they just talk to us? Why can't we talk directly eyeball to eyeball with one of their executives and find out what we can do to help them create a better image? There was a, a theater shut down in California last night by the police because of Joker threats. I don't know if that's a friend of ours called from California, and it was Huntington Beach, right? Huntington Beach, yes. And Sandy, is there an action you'd like the studio to take directly with the film? No. Um, like I said, it's a it's a form of art. Um, so, you know, we're not boycotting. We're not uh, asking them to pull the film. We're just asking them to be responsible and, and help those who need the help and quit donating to those that we're fighting so hard against so that we have a safer community. Uh, ironically enough, this movie is probably going to make the more, this controversy is going to help make money for the movie, creating controversy. That's fine. Still, the bottom line is 
try to improve your image by helping us make our society safer. And we've asked three times to to meet with them, and um, they haven't responded. So um, that would be the first step, wouldn't it? And I am curious how you think of Todd Phillips and Star Walking Phoenix. How have they been responding to these concerns about real-world violence being caused by the film? You know, here's the thing with, with Todd Phillips. Um, he's supposed to be a very talented director. Joaquin Phoenix obviously is a very talented actor. The same story could be told without the violence. And if you have a really good director, a really good scriptwriter, and a really good actor, you could tell the same story just as powerfully. Another actor in the film, Robert De Niro, recently said that he agrees with your letter about what Warner Brothers should do. And the Century Theater in Aurora, where the shooting happened seven years ago, announced that it will not be showing Joker, and other local theaters have decided to heighten security. Lonnie, do you think that those are appropriate responses? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Uh, You know, our society is afraid. You know, let's, let's face reality. You know, this is different than before. This movie does not get this kind of controversy in Japan. You know why? There's no guns accessible in Japan to anyone, especially an AR-15. We have the problem. Almost 400,000, what is it, 300, 400 million guns in this country. Almost 393 million guns in this country. And we let anybody buy them and we sell assault weapons to civilians. That's why we have this problem. If If we lived in Japan, Germany, England, name any other top 10 industrial country, they don't have our problem. We have a culture here that we need to deal with. It's the culture. This is just one of those tiny little facets of it, culture. And I think when we start talking about the culture of our gun uh, culture in this country and trying to meet reasonable and responsible uh, things that we, they can, there's things they can do. I just wish they would talk to us. The studio said in their statement, Warner Brothers believes that one of the functions of storytelling is to provoke difficult conversations around complex issues. Sandy, you said you're not calling on a ban on this film, but I wonder if you see any benefits to telling stories like this one, and do you agree with the studio here? I personally don't. Um, I don't watch violent movies. I never have. They've never appealed to me. Um, And certainly after our daughter's death and how she was slaughtered in that theater, I, I can't. Emotionally, I can't. Um, but I also think it's really bad for our society. Sandy and Lonnie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Sandy and Lonnie Phillips are the parents of Jessica Gowie, one of the 12 people killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. They, are, they and four other friends and family members of victims wrote a letter to Warner Brothers before it released Joker. Colorado's legal cannabis industry has a big environmental footprint, using lots of water and energy. Now researchers want to know, could the plant itself be contributing to air pollution? We've reported before about the idea of the so-called green cloud. Here's CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis with an update. Garden City is a very small town, less than one square mile right outside of Greeley. Fitting to its name, there are three cannabis grow houses within Garden City's limits. 
One is Smokey's. Scott Brady, operations manager, gives a tour. We have three different flower rooms here. Each one of them have about 750 square feet. We've got both medical here as well as adult use. Smokey's tries to be an environmentally friendly business. Their goal is zero waste, they use sustainable packaging, and what Brady calls living soil. Worms and bugs and lots of other organic matter to grow their plants. We have an obligation to make sure that we are an addition to our communities and not a drag on our communities. Brady says that's why Smokies volunteer to be part of a state study that's trying to figure out if cannabis contributes to air pollution. No, the study is not about all the energy and water that grow operations use. And it's not about smoking the plant either. This is about terpenes, the organic compounds that make the cannabis plant smell, well, like pot. Brady opens up a big bag of bud. You'll be able to smell that not only does this have a very unique terpene profile unto itself, but that it's very different from the next one. You can have the fruity smells and the earthy smells and the very spicy smells. Terpenes are classified as volatile organic compounds, or VOCs. Lots of consumer products release VOCs, like acetone and nail polish remover, butanol from barbecues and stoves. And many different plants produce terpenes, not just cannabis. Think lavender. VOCs from cannabis are harmless until they combine with other gases to create ozone. Here's Caitlin Urso with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. There's two main ingredients to ozone. There's volatile organic compounds. And combustion emissions from our cars, our power plants. In the presence of sunlight, you get ground-level ozone formation. She says they're doing research to figure out how cannabis might be contributing to this. Because unlike other VOC-emitting crops, cannabis is often grown in greenhouses in the industrial areas of cities near highways and lots of cars. Here in Colorado, as far as air quality concerns go, ozone is our largest pollutant of concern. We are not meeting the national ambient air quality standards for ozone. Denver is especially bad. According to the American Lung Association, it has the nation's 12th worst air quality. Usually it's the Federal Environmental Protection Agency that studies emissions from new industries. But because marijuana is still federally illegal, EPA is not going to do those studies to tell us, so we kind of need to step in and do a study and quantify essentially how many pounds of VOCs are emitted into our atmosphere per pound of marijuana grown. Four cannabis companies volunteered to be part of the study, including Smokies. Urso's team collected air samples from both inside the grow operations and the air admitted outside. They took samples at different stages of cultivation, including processing. They're cutting them all up and they're sending them through roto machines that are flinging plant material everywhere. Definitely, you know, it releases those terpenes a lot more and you get a lot higher smells, a lot higher VOC emission rates. The state study will be the most robust of its kind. It builds on research that found cannabis grows could be contributing anywhere from 66 tons to 657 tons of emissions per year. Compared to total VOCs found in the state, it's anywhere from about a 0.4 or half a percent increase to a three and a half percent increase of the total. That's William Vizuete, an associate professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. He knows that's a big range and is working to narrow it down. He tested air samples collected from different strains of marijuana plants. What was really surprising to us was that the types of gases that the plant was emitting really varied by the strain and the life cycle of the plant itself. As it grew older and matured, the types of gases that it was releasing also changed. 
With more than 600 strains of cannabis in Colorado, he says there could be a wide range of how much gas is emitted by these plants. Vizuete's study is still in the review process and hasn't been published yet. He's now working with Caitlin Urso and CDPHE and says their research will give a more precise look at marijuana's emissions. But he says what's really needed is federal support to help decide if this is a public health issue. Right now, that's missing. And so now it's on to the states with limited budgets, limited research to fill the role of what the federal government would do in determining the basic science and developing the tools that are needed to make decisions. This lack of federal support even makes doing the research hard. When Vizuete came to Colorado, he teamed up with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. He thought in a legal state his work would be in the clear. But he found out he wasn't allowed to grow pot in the federally supported research labs. He had to improvise. We grew them in a garage. Uh, We set up uh, some grow lights. We had to choose several strains of marijuana. And, you know, we had friends to help out and water and take care of the plants. Bizuete's study was done without any federal money. To get more funding, he might work with Canada, who's expressed interest in his research now that the country has legalized marijuana. Without federal guidance, each state can set different emission standards for cannabis. Colorado doesn't have any. If this was a gas station, we would have permits and regulations on all their VOC emissions. But that doesn't exist right now for the cannabis industry. Even if the state study does expose a pollution problem, Colorado law means regulators can't do anything about it. Of course, lawmakers could always step in. And that's what made Scott Brady, the grow operations manager at Smokies, hesitant to participate. He says anytime cannabis opens itself up to scrutiny, you don't know where it could lead. But it's important to know either way, good news or bad news, what is it that that we are doing? And then to be able to have conversation with them about what can we do to help that? How can we mitigate it, what we can do? One easy fix that already exists, carbon filters, which lots of grows already use to control smell, also do a great job absorbing VOCs. The state hopes to share more solutions like this and educate the cannabis industry about their possible environmental impact. Brady says he's listening. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. It's the stereotype of a college student, broke and living on ramen noodles. But advocates say it's no laughing matter. A question through Colorado Wonders asks, there's a lot of buzz about college students struggling with food and housing insecurity. How do Colorado students fare? CPR's Taylor Allen found the answer. Kirsten Toft is a senior at the University of Denver. She's accustomed to measuring time only by when she gets paid. I'm doing all right. I think I'm going to get paid next week, and I think I'll have enough money for rent after that, I'm pretty sure. Toft is a full-time student, has two jobs, and works an unpaid internship. She's also a regular at her school's food pantry. She goes about once a week to pick up pasta and canned foods. But sometimes... That's not enough. Lately, she says it hasn't been well-stocked, and she's had to go to other places, and that cuts into her rent money. It'd be nice if they consistently had bread and to have, like, more produce. Toff's experience isn't unique. About two-thirds of Denver-area college students last year were worried about their next meal or where they would sleep at night. That's according to a study from Temple University. About 3,000 students from DU, the Community College of Denver, Metropolitan State University of Denver, and the University of Colorado Denver took the survey. The study defines food insecurity as having limited access to or uncertain availability of nutritious food. To be housing insecure means that students aren't sure if they'll make rent this month and maybe have to couch surf.
Vanessa Coca is the assistant director of research at the Hope Center at Temple University. She says food pantries are only part of the solution. We're now encouraging colleges to think beyond food pantries. Um, that could be appointing a director of student wellness and basic needs at the university. Um, and that person would have a team that some with case management skills, um, others who might serve as a single point of contact for particular students, maybe students experiencing homelessness. Colorado already embraces that idea. Every college in Colorado, community or four-year, has a designated staff member to be a single point of contact if a student is experiencing homelessness, called the McKinney-Vento Homeless Education Liaison. It goes under the federal law, which is supposed to remove all educational barriers facing young people who are homeless. The problem is, not many students know about it. We encourage partnerships, and that could mean partnerships with community organizations. This is really a multi-tiered issue, and it requires multi-tiered, multiple actors to actually try to solve some of these issues. The Action Center and Red Rocks Community College are working together to reopen a homeless shelter for at-risk students. And Pikes Peak Community College works with United Way 211, a service that provides counseling and referrals. Other schools offer housing and scholarship resources, even an emergency fund that students can apply for. But there's no guarantee. The Making Higher Education Attainable Interim Study Committee will now come to order. Democratic Senator Tammy Story is the chairwoman. I think when 40% of Colorado's K-12 through students qualify for free and reduced lunch, it should be no big surprise that we're going to have a significant population of students that are moving on to post-secondary options that suffer from food insecurity and housing insecurity. The committee is holding ongoing hearings to listen to college officials and students testify about what they need. Metro State President Janine Davidson says schools need more funding. Why is tuition going up so much? It's not necessarily, as you'll see from our numbers at least, because the costs are going up. It's because of who's required to pay for those costs. Senator Story agrees. She says the state covered two-thirds of the cost of higher education in the year 2000. By 2011, that amount dropped to a third. I'd I'd like to believe that we could invest more um, in higher education. I don't foresee that there is going to be some huge uh, new funding revenue stream that's going to develop where we suddenly can um, invest more. Story says the committee is working on a bill they'll introduce in the next legislative session to address the concerns, but she doesn't have any details yet. Until then, Kirsten Toss will have her hectic schedule to make ends meet. She'll get home from work at midnight, do homework till 3 a.m., and somehow get up for class at 8. But I'm graduating soon, so that's keeping me going. Toft will graduate in December. I'm Taylor Allen, CPR News. Denver International Airport is among the busiest in the United States. And despite construction delays, the number of passengers passing through continues to rise. United Airlines has been adding flights to Denver. Just two years ago, it operated about 360 daily flights out of the Mile High City. On some days this summer, it flew more than 500. Aviation reporter Brian Summers has reported on United Airlines' interest in Denver for Skift, a media company focused on travel. Hi, Brian. Hi, thanks for having me. United Airlines President Scott Kirby described Denver as a diamond in the rough. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, Denver is a perfect place to have an airline hub. It's in the center of the country, has great geography. There's a, a very robust local market. Your economy is doing fabulously. And, uh, you know, this airport was built in the 1990s. And the, the joke for those of us uh, from out of town is that it's in the middle of nowhere. But the great part about having an airport in the middle of nowhere is you have so much space. So it's a super efficient airport uh, layout. It's a wonderful place for a domestic connecting hub. Take people from the West Coast to the East Coast and vice versa. And if you live in Denver, you can benefit from that because you can travel to a lot more places than you would ordinarily. That word hub gets thrown around a lot when we talk about airlines. What does it mean when an airline decides to make an airport a hub? An airline hub is essentially a factory that manufactures connections. So if you live in Denver, you don't think of it as a hub. You think of it as an airport that you go to to take that flight to Chicago or Washington or whatever. But if you live in the rest of the country, you can't get as many places nonstop as you can if you live in Denver. So you fly from Nashville to Denver, to Santa Barbara. And that's a connection that United has manufactured, and it allows them to basically connect any two points in the country with a very efficient 30 or 45-minute stop in Denver. It's why it works so well. So it means that there are a lot more connecting flights into Denver, but that also seems like it would have some benefits for people who live in Colorado. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, if you're in a, a normal uh, city the size of Denver that is not an airline hub, you do not get to go so many places nonstop. Because United has made Denver a connecting hub, it gives you an opportunity to fly so many more places than you ordinarily would. I'll give you an example. You can now fly year-round from Denver to London nonstop on United Airlines. Now, Denver is a big city. But there are just not that many people going from Denver to London every single day to fill a Boeing 787. But when United starts drawing people from every city in the Rocky Mountains and those people connect in Denver and they go on to London, you might have an airplane that's half filled with people from Denver who get to fly nonstop, which is a wonderful benefit. But then you have people from all over the Rocky Mountain West coming to Denver to fill the rest of those uh, 50 percent of the seats. And it makes a route that wouldn't work in the past work for United. And when did United Airlines actually make the decision to put more flights here? Yeah, United Airlines has had a pretty large hub in Denver for the last, you know, 20 plus years or so. Uh, but it was only when Scott Kirby, who used to be president of an airline called U.S. Airways and then president of an airline called American Airlines, which people know, uh, came to United about three years ago where he said, my goodness, Denver is so undersized. The last uh, management team at United didn't realize what they had. They had about 400 daily flights. Scott Kirby came in and said, we can grow this thing big time. So now they're at about 500 uh, daily peak flights. But it's certainly possible that they could go up to above uh, 700 flights a day in Denver, which would just be huge for the local area. There was a decision that came out in January. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this was January 2018. United Airlines President Scott Kirby got in front of uh, many Wall Street analysts and he said, we are undersized in the middle of the United States compared to our competitors. So Scott Kirby said, we're going to grow Denver. United is going to grow Houston and grow Chicago. Was there any pushback to the original decision? 
The funny thing is, at the time, uh, the investment community was extremely upset because when you grow three hubs in the middle of the country, what happens is you add capacity, you add more seats in the marketplace. Generally, when an airline adds more seats in the marketplace, this is the laws of supply and demand, prices go down. The Wall Street analysts were very worried that this was going to spark some sort of a fair war, that all these airlines were going to fight for the same passengers, um, and it was going to be bad for investors but good for consumers. Scott Kirby at United came out and said, no, you know what, the market can absorb this extra capacity. That's pretty much what has happened, and I will tell you since this January 2018 decision from United, United stock is way up. It's not down. So this so far has been a great decision for United, and, and Denver is a, is a wonderful hub for United. Now, airline hubs go in cycles. An airline that decides to make a lot of connections in a city might not always make a lot of connections in that city, just depending on a number of factors. Do you see that happening to Denver? I don't see it happening to Denver in the same way. And here's why. A lot of the uh, U.S. airline hubs that have gone away in the last several years have been in cities that are smaller than Denver and cities that do not have the same sort of geographical uh, advantage. So, Some of the cities that have lost hubs include uh, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Memphis. These are fine cities, but they do not have the local economy of Denver, and they do not have the geography of Denver. So I think Denver will be strong for a while. Now, if there's a recession, all these airlines are going to cut flights in all kinds of places. Now, United certainly isn't the first airline to make Denver a hub. Are other airlines paying attention, and are other airlines considering making this place a hub as well? Well, you know, you have a a very good situation in Denver. Uh, You have two other airlines, Frontier Airlines and Southwest Airlines, who both think very highly of Denver. Southwest has come out and said it wants to grow a lot in Denver. They see a lot of the same things that United does. But United has gotten to the point where they are the clear market leader in Denver. And I guess I want to make sure that I'm speaking accurately. Is United the first airline to make Denver a hub? Uh, It's not. uh, This goes back to airline history. Uh, Continental Airlines, uh, before it merged with United, well before used to operate a um, a hub at uh, Denver's Stapleton Airport. So it's it's always been a very popular market among airlines. You, You just can't buy that geography. I understand Denver's location being good for connecting flights nationally, but what about internationally? Yeah, historically, Denver has been a great hub uh, for the domestic market, east to west, that sort of thing. But United tells me um, that they see Denver as a place that they can expand internationally. Um, So several years ago, they had only one international flight, long haul. It was to Tokyo. They're now in uh, London year-round. They're in Frankfurt. They're in Tokyo. I spoke to somebody at United this year who said they can absolutely do more. And what's the main drawback for Denver? This gets into aircraft technology, and it's not as big of a deal as it used to be. Denver is, of course, the mile-high city. Uh, I'm not an expert in uh, the technology of of airplanes, but uh, airplanes essentially can't fly as far. They lose some performance at high altitudes, and that gets even worse during the summer when temperatures are high. So United can only send certain airplanes into Denver, especially during the hottest times of the year because of performance issues. I did speak to somebody... United about this um, this week, and he said it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but people in Denver may or may not notice this uh, because of the aircraft performance issues. United has a few times a year and on certain aircraft where it cannot sell every seat on the plane. 
Uh, it's what we call a, uh, a seat block. So an airplane might have uh, 160 seats and United might only sell 150. And that's to sort of boost aircraft performance because a lighter plane can, can fly farther. They couldn't sell it. It's just that it wasn't. Sometimes they're not trying to sell it. <laughs> that's so interesting. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Brian Summers is the senior aviation business editor and reporter at Skift. After the break, making art behind bars. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You can find CBD just about everywhere these days. Coffee shops, gas stations, vitamin stores. It's derived from cannabis, but it doesn't actually get you high. That's one of its main strengths, according to journalist Martin Lee. One of the criticisms of the medical marijuana phenomenon is, oh, this is just an excuse for people getting high. But once CBD is part of the mix, you can't use that criticism anymore. CBD on the latest episode of On Something. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. For the last few years, while Jeff Johnson's been in a Colorado prison, his artwork was featured in an exhibit in Denver. It's called Chained Voices, and it promotes art made by inmates across the state. Johnson, who's 42 and now out of prison, spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about what creating art meant to him when he was behind bars. Jeff Johnson says art is a big deal for inmates. We pick it up just to kind of get away from the reality of the environment and, uh, It's just like a creative way to kind of delve inside yourself and get lost in what you're doing. Johnson was sentenced to life without parole as a juvenile for his part in a murder. He was released a year ago because of a Supreme Court ruling that found sentences like his unconstitutional. He remembers in prison staying up late in his cell doing beadwork. At the same time, he says his cellmate would create beautiful things out of nothing. Like rolling up cardboard from the back of writing tablets and, you know, rolling up paper all night in the cell and then making jewelry boxes, extremely nice jewelry boxes. Today, Johnson is with juvenile defense attorney Ashley Ratliff, who's going through dozens of art pieces that'll be on display this weekend at the Denver Art Society. This framed piece was a cloth napkin. Um, So this piece is painting on cloth. And it looks to me like two individuals embracing, and there's something about time. The piece is almost dreamlike. It has muted colors except for a pink rose near the center. There's also a painting of a boat entitled Viking Voyage, and there are some incredibly detailed drawings of animals, including a series of brightly colored tigers and a black-and-white chalk drawing of a very lifelike gorilla. There's poetry and jewelry, too. Ashley Ratliff helped get the project off the ground. It started out with a couple lawyers and a couple social workers noticing the incredible talent of our clients. Coming from a world where people make assumptions about who they are, and we were trying to figure out how can we showcase their art, share with the community their plight, and see how the community responds. This year, as in past years, hundreds of people are expected to check out the art. Each artist fills out a submission form that's displayed alongside the artwork and includes background on the piece. It also describes what the inmate plans to do with the money if a work is sold. Ratliff says some use the proceeds for more art supplies or for phone calls or stamps to send letters. 
She says some also donate their earnings to charity. Jeff Johnson says that's what he used to do, and he knew lots of other inmates who did the same thing. I think when they kind of realize like life isn't about them, and it's now about kind of honoring victims and honoring just society as a whole, it's, it's a kind of a way to give back. Anyone who goes to the exhibit can fill out cards with their impressions of particular pieces of art. And later, the cards are sent on to prisons for the artists to read. A lot of guys don't get mail, you know, for whatever reason. They might have destroyed their family relationships or that they're just trying to rebuild a lot of the relationships. But to receive something from somebody that you don't know that just says, hey, look, this is amazing. Uh, Keep it up. I think it it helps provide you motivation just to keep doing what you're doing and staying on that positive track. Johnson remains on that positive track now that he's out of prison. He's got a good job, he's married, and is expecting twins. And this weekend, he gets to attend the exhibit for the first time to talk directly with visitors about what it's like to make art behind bars. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. An orchestra director at a North Colorado high school announced earlier this year that he would leave to pursue a full-time career as a composer. During his five years at Windsor High School, Chris Pilsner, a Fort Collins native, tripled the size of the music program. His students traveled across the United States and Europe with him performing his original music. Before he left, he gave his students a memorable parting gift, an orchestral piece written as a tribute to them. Snow Falling in Autumn appears on Pilsner's new album, Elements. The Fort Collins Symphony will premiere a new composition from Pilsner, A Light in the Ocean, tomorrow night to open their concert season. Chris joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. You have a degree in both music education and music composition. Your first big success as a composer came when you were still an undergrad at the University of Northern Colorado. The piece Doom Spiro Sparrow, which has been performed in all 50 states and, four, and 13 countries. How did that composition propel your music career? Well, I had the fortunate uh, event that I went to Rocky Mountain High School in Fort Collins, and my former teacher called me up one day and asked me, hey, do you want to write a piece for my group? And I said I would be honored to. And I spent a lot of time because I knew it was going to be a very personal piece for me. And I so I spent a lot of time. And it was a very unique piece for the concert band world because it was a very lyrical piece, which there's not a lot of great music for concert band that's lyrical. And I was just amazed by after I premiered it, it got heard by all sorts of different people and were just spread about it. And everybody told everybody else about it. And I was just honored to have all my music spread across the country just through other people telling other uh, colleagues about the piece. Across the country and even around the world. You became the director of the orchestra program at Windsor High School in 2014. 
What was the state of the program when you arrived and how did you build it up? So the orchestra program was fairly small. There was only one orchestra when I arrived at Windsor High School. And I, after the first year, I went to the administration at the school and asked them if I could just do an absolutely crazy thing and turn around the program in a completely different direction. And they were uh, fortunate enough to actually let me do it. And I spent the next three years uh, building up the program, encouraging students to take private lessons, encouraging uh, the highest level that I could of all of those students. And we spent a lot of time together thinking about what we could do together. And the important thing for me as a teacher was to make sure that those students felt like they were part of a family and that they had some place to belong at the school. And that orchestra became such a tight-knit community for those students. And we had so many successful moments because of the fact that we were able to talk with each other, to support each other, and to encourage each other every single day, which was a really, really special thing for me to see, especially in such amazing young individuals. And it sounds like you have more than just a passion for the music. It sounds like you also have a real passion for teaching. What do you enjoy about the teaching? Oh, I, the thing I love about teaching and what was the hardest thing for me to do when I left Windsor is that, you know, it's amazing how incredible young people are. And I think that a lot of people don't really realize how incredible uh, we are and how uh, um, special we have it that we have so many incredible uh, young individuals that are supporting each other and encouraging each other every single day. And the amount that they can learn in a short amount of time is just absolutely phenomenal to me. Some of the students that I had at Windsor, I spent four years with, and they started at, you know, a very basic level when they came in and they just achieved some of the highest uh, achievements that I could have ever imagined for them. And I imagine after pouring in so much to this program, it was difficult to leave Windsor. And that's a career with a, to leave to be a full-time composer is a career with a good deal of uncertainty. What led to that decision? Well, for the entire time that I was a teacher at Windsor High School, I was also composing in the on the side. And it became a decision where I had to, for my own sanity, to uh, choose one or the other. And the thing that I had always loved is I always loved writing music, and but I'd always kind of fell in love with teaching as well. And so when it came to the point to make a decision between the two, uh, I kind of looked at what I was doing compositionally and the opportunities that I had to spread my music to other people to let them enjoy the same things that I've been enjoying for uh, years and to still work with young people, but at a little bit different level where they get to perform my music instead of me just always being there. Uh, and the fortunate thing is I I still am working with uh, schools today and uh, talking with students. I teach private composition lessons and everything. And so I'm still able to work with young people, but now I get to compose full time, which is almost like a rock star dream for a classical musician. (laughs) And you've said that telling your students at Windsor that you were leaving was the hardest conversation you've ever had. Take us through that day. (laughs) That's a hard day to relive um, because of the fact that I I went through the day as a normal rehearsal. We had a great 90 minutes of making music together. And then I said, all right, we need to pack up a little early today. And we need to talk just a quick. And with that, I, I laid out for them. I was like, there is so much love and so much care that I have for each individual in this room. And I appreciate and uh, uh, remember every single moment that we've shared together. And it's a really special time for me, but for my own sake, I have to move on to 
something for my career and to further that. a little bit more from your parting gift to your students at Windsor High School, the piece Snow Falling in Autumn. How does this music convey the sentiments you have for your students? Well, in the entire time that I was writing the piece of music, they were in my thoughts. I mean, this was written specifically for this group of about 30 individuals. And so every single note has a part of them in it. And it was one thing that I looked back at and I didn't know what to title the piece when I was writing it because it was just so emotional for me. And I told the students that there was actually uh, a second title that was kind of a hidden title and it was Memories of You. And it was a special Mm -hmm. thing of that this was written for you and this was written with every single accomplishment and every single moment that we shared together with you in mind. And your students performed Snow Falling in Autumn at the American String Teachers Association Festival in Boulder this year. They received the highest possible rating for the performance. What was it like to hear the piece in that setting? Oh, it was incredible. We got to perform in the historical Mackey Auditorium, and it was just a phenomenal experience to end my career with those students at a terrific uh, festival being one of the few uh, orchestras to make it to that festival in the state. And it was a pinnacle moment because of the amazing accomplishments that they had made up until that point. And this was almost the tipping point or the, the amazing moment that we got to share together. And I was just so happy for them and so proud of them because of all the hard work that they had put in the entire school year. And writing orchestral music, it's not a very common way to make a living in 2019. (laughs) Like you said, it's a rock star's dream for a modern composer. What does life as a full-time composer look like so far? Uh, And so, so far, it's a lot of time spent at my home studio writing music. Um, I also self-publish my music, so I'm also printing music, sending it off across the country and even across to different countries And so it's a lot of organization on that end, but it's kind of the glorious moment where I can wake up, walk across into my studio, and I'm at work. And so that's the most wonderful thing for me is that I can work pretty much whenever I want to. And being a composer, a lot of times you find inspiration at the oddest times of day. And so you might wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, hey, I've got a great idea. Luckily for me, I just walk out and I get to work and I can spend all that time working pretty much whenever I need to. And you don't have to be at school the next morning. Exactly. This year, you released the new album, Elements. It features Snow Falling in Autumn and three other pieces, including The Lost Relic. The 
music on this album wasn't recorded by your students, but rather by the Vienna Synchron Stage Orchestra, who have never seen the music before. You had only a few hours to record. How do you conduct musicians who have no familiarity with your music? Well, the most amazing thing about these musicians is these musicians are what's called session musicians, which means that they come in and read music almost perfectly in the first run through. And so we are able to spend a very short amount of time where they simply got the music on their stand this first time they ever saw it. And we would just do multiple recordings each time and I would give my comments in between each recording and they would fix it instantaneously. I mean, these are some of the best musicians on the planet. And so working with them is like driving a Ferrari. And so you just, yeah, you have to figure out exactly how it works. But as soon as you figure out how it works, they just push ahead and it just, it's full speed ahead. And it was such an incredible experience working with 40 of the best musicians that I've ever had the honor to work with. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Fort Collins Symphony will debut Chris Pilsner's new composition, A Light in the Ocean, tomorrow night at the Lincoln Center in Fort Collins. Pilsner's album, Elements, is out now. Thank you for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.